0: Okay, we are on the fourth installment of our canon series, and before we get started, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, again, we look into your scriptures this evening looking to understand your character better, to look into the apostles whom you had chosen to speak uh, as Christ himself in orthodoxy and doctrine, and to set your people apart, to make them holy, to make the church a proper bride, waiting for her bridegroom. And we ask that while this is good information, that we just not file it away in our minds as fun uh, trivia knowledge, that we look into this earnestly, that we may know you better, that we may treasure your scriptures We may take what we read and know the context behind them, that these were men, the apostles, these were men under uh, uh, extreme circumstances that had government all around them looking to persecute them, their own people persecuting them, and your people that you called out of the world that, that was your church in the first century and is your church today. Uh, feels that same weight and let us hold fast to these truths that you have revealed to us through your word and let us let us uh, have a a a better full more comprehensive understanding of how you've brought your revelation to us we seek to honor christ we seek to be sanctified let us let us be holy and let us uh, we ask that you sanctify us and this teaching and then all the teachings that you give us through uh, Brian and Jeff and, and as we meet and gather as your church on Sunday. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, this is going to be a really quick introduction. I'm actually recording this after I've already done the main body of the study. And it's uh, a little bit over an hour. So it's like an hour and, well, including this, it's going to be like an hour and six minutes. So I just want to briefly go over what I'm going to talk about and then we'll get started. Okay, so we're going to go over the argument of our opponents a little deeper. So we're going to go look at Walter Bauer and his his thesis. We're going to talk a little bit about Bart Ehrman and a guy named uh, Arnold uh, Earhart, dissect their arguments a little bit. And then we're going to continue on looking into apostolic authority and how our opponents dismantle and try to subvert any type of apostolic authority and, uh, and message. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Here we go. So for roughly 1900 years, the church, and when I say the church, I mean East, West, eventually Protestantism, all have the fundamental understanding of belief that the early church was set upon a clear foundation of doctrine that was preached by ministers of the new covenant, which would be the apostles and the clear teaching of Christ That God in his sovereignty has decreed to be spread out over the world to save a particular people. And that the early church coalesced around this clear doctrine of who Christ is, right? And uh, justification, glorification, the resurrection of the body, and the new heavens and new earth. And from that, we see heresies that will branch off from this fundamental clear doctrine and try to influence the church in different ways. That's how the church believed, or that's what the church believed, again, for roughly 1900 years. It really wasn't uh, until we're coming up on 90 years, 84, 86 years ago, that this paradigm started to change. And we start with a man named Walter Bauer. Now, Walter Bauer, I've mentioned before in different studies that there's no such thing as a vacuum, right? When we see when we see influential works in the church that change mindsets or change ethics or change theology, it always stems from a issue over time, right? A a heresy over time. Like for example, Arianism, right? The Council of Nicaea didn't just happen overnight. This was a, a growing issue. Even Arian Arian uh, Arius himself, with trying to fight Sabellianism, uh, overreacts in his in his theology, and uh, his counter arguments. Right. So we always there's there's never a vacuum. There's always influences that build up to these these monumental moments in time. Neither, how, however, the, we'll point to that that point in time, which would be a a work that Walter Bauer writes. Now, Walter Bauer was a German theologian uh, born in 1877. And in 1934, he writes a, he authors a work called Orthodoxy and Heresy, which takes the idea that the church held of orthodoxy at the beginning and heresy stemming out from that, turns that on its head and actually says, well, uh, there is evidence to point that the church was never orthodox, even in its inception, that we have different areas or different geographical areas that we could point to and say what the church believed here as orthodox fundamentally differs from what the church believes in a different area. And this is, uh, and they, could, they will actually point to the apostles themselves as even disagreeing with each other and their theology, most most would point to Paul and Peter's theology being at odds uh, with each other. Uh, so the argument now is going to is going to shift to uh, heresy coming before orthodoxy. And again, I mentioned in the first, second, probably, and third uh, episodes of this study that the argument is not. We don't know what the author said. We don't know the clear teaching of the author of uh, the letter to the corinthians paul or romans now the question is going to be did the church really believe what paul had to say Uh, did the church believe uh, paul's theology or is it just just the churches that paul had influence over and other churches that didn't have that influence believe different things and if we can if we can establish that, then we could put doubt into the authenticity of Christ's message, because then Christ doesn't speak clearly. And in fact, the ministers that Christ appointed as uh, new covenant bearers, new covenant uh, 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 promulgators in this in this message, didn't have a, a cohesive, clear gospel. So Walter Bauer's is going to write this thesis, and he's going to conclude that the only reason we believe what we what we believe today is because the Church of Rome was successful in squashing out these other, uh, as they would categorize it, heretical beliefs, right? And even the terms in this thesis, even the terms orthodoxy and heresy are subjective. Because, because in Walter Bauer's view now, orthodoxy is only what is most popular. There is no ontological view here of orthodoxy where it is breathed out by God. It is the message that God is bringing to the world. It is more a cultural construct or a, a, a influence of personality, Paul's personality, Peter's personality, Philip's personality and, and their gravitas or their ability to influence people is what makes it orthodox. And what is heresy now is just what becomes unpopular. Not that it's inherently, uh, denies the deity of Christ or denies the work of God, but that it simply doesn't take hold and become more popular than the others. And Bart Ehrman, we'll talk about him later, but even in, even in his book, Lost Christianities, he opens up with the hypothesis of what if the Gnostic uh, view of Christianity had won out? Or what about the, Marcion, the Marcionism? or the Martian view of Christianity had one out we would we would look at Christ differently and we would have different beliefs right this is the premise of uh, of Walter Bauer's thesis and in this thesis again we go back to our definitions uh, Walter Bauer will certainly agree with the exclusive view right this is this is the exclusive view off that goes off the rails so this is the view that says it's only the uh, church authority that gives any kind of uh, basis of writings or epistles upon which the church would be built off of. It has nothing to do with God having a sovereign decree over his over his word and his message. It merely comes down to powerhouses in different areas trying to push their agendas. Bauer uh, Walter Bauer would agree with the functional view because he would he would say, well, each each gospel tradition. And different areas would function in the same way, just with different outcomes of belief. What they will deny is, again, the ontological view of Scripture or the ontological definition. And all, all views or all beliefs will be looked at equally in their, in their orthodoxy, which is why a term that Bart Ehrman will come up with is proto-orthodoxy. Now, I mentioned different influences that would lead Walter Bauer to write this thesis. Many, many of those influences, probably one of the main ones, is the Enlightenment itself. We also have different schools of thought on religion where they would stand over any type of religious document and judge it in their own context. They would stand over God's word and judge it themselves. Uh, this, is, this is just a byproduct of removing God from any any power in his own creation and merely man influencing each other. Now, I mentioned Bauer wrote this thesis in 1934, and I think it's 1934. Um, Well, it's pre-World War II. It's either 1934 or 1936. But it's pre-World War II, and his thesis uh, initially didn't get get much traction. That's mainly because the world was engulfed in a war and, and nothing else mattered except for defeating the Nazis. But after the war was over... And the world settled down. Walter Bauer's thesis started to to gain a little bit more momentum, and we started seeing two sides emerge from from Walter Bauer's thesis. One side was was calling for the complete reevaluation of orthodoxy of how we see the early church, and the other group, of course, was staunchly against Bauer's thesis and wrote some very devastating articles against Bauer's thesis and showing that in fact the church was orthodox from the beginning that there's a clear there's a clear doctrine preached by the apostles that is consistent across the board to all these regions of the church now, from Walter Bauer, we're going to have a lot of scholars take his foundational thesis and build upon it, use their own spin, whatever speciality they have in their religious studies, they'll kind of enhance Bauer's, Bauer's thesis. We're going to have men point to the, uh, I mentioned the, the Pauline and, and Peter theologies are, are in conflict. And... and for example a man named uh, Harnack is going to promote this kind of disunity between uh, Paul and Peter now it, i think it's as easy as pointing to second peter 3:16 to show that there is no there is no conflict in what paul and peter are saying they may be emphasizing different things but there's no there's no disunity here and peter would says this uh, and count the patience of our lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So even Peter here acknowledges, look, there's a there's a clear understanding of the gospel that people take and distort. And Paul is one of the apostles who are promoting or promoting are are proclaiming this gospel this clear gospel and it's, it, there is no conflict between him and Peter at this point. Peter is just acknowledging it can be difficult because as, as God's work in the sun is expounded upon, it's uh it, it gets, the theology gets deeper. Remember God always uh, puts context to his salvific work. And this is what God is doing as these, uh, these men are writing to these churches. And uh, so, Peter clearly states here there's no conflict. However, what these scholars will do then is say, well, we're not really sure Peter wrote 2nd Peter. So again, the poisoning of the well is saying, yeah, Peter didn't write that. So if we can if we can if we can tickle your mind, tickle your brain and put the doubt in there that Peter actually wrote this, then we can't we can't come to the conclusion that Paul and Peter actually uh, did complement each other in their in their gospel, in their proclamation of the gospel, that we're, we're not sure now, right? So this is how they get around the clear statements, right? They won't deny what this says. This is clear. But they will undermine authorship and authority. Now, real quickly, I want to point out that we are not arguing that heresy didn't exist in the first century church. That is uh, that is perfectly clear. That is perfectly clear in Galatians when Paul is uh, demolishing the Judaizers, telling them to castrate themselves. It's clear when, when John writes his letters going against those who say Christ did not come in the flesh. Uh, it's clear in Revelation when, when John is writing to the churches. There's no doubt that there's heresies and wolves in the church trying to preach, other, preach things other than the gospel. Where the issue is, or where, where we would where we don't agree, is that these uh, that there was no fundamental orthodoxy in in uh, uh, defending against these heresies, that these were looked at in the churches as legitimate beliefs, or just different versions of, of Christianity that were legitimate in themselves, and that had no uh, did not branch off from an orthodox teaching. Again, it denies the authority of the apostles as, as the mouthpiece of Christ. It really denies Christ in, his, his, in him giving authority to the apostles to do these things. If Christ gives the apostles the authority to preach this stuff, and then their message is garbled, well, the what, who is Christ then? If, if that's God, if that's God incarnate, if that's the second person of the Trinity entering his own creation, and he can't even, he can't even give a clear message of what he's doing, then that undermines Christianity. Then that's and that is the intent of the of this liberal scholarship. And Bart Ehrman would be a prime example of this undermining, and we'll get to him uh, later. Now Walter Bauer, in uh, in pointing to the the conflict between different orthodox proto orthodox beliefs, will will point to uh, 95 A.D. and say this is the first instance where we can see the church in Rome trying to exert its influence and power on these other churches as these different Christian beliefs are, are starting to spread around different areas. So in Alexandria, Gnosticism starting to spread to, to Rome or the Asia minor heresies are starting to seep into, into uh, Egypt or something like that. And they're going to point to a letter that First Clement writes to the church in Corinth. Now, I want to stop right there and talk about that for a second, because I think we can easily, uh, I can easily dismantle this. <laughs> it might be a, a lofty assertion here, but I think I can uh, dismantle this claim uh, fairly easily. It starts with understanding the church in Corinth. Um, it's, Acts 18 shows us who, who uh, started the church there. It's Paul. Uh, Acts 18, starting in verse 1. After Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Uh, wait, did I mess that up? Oh, you know. Verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And then verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go, out, go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. No one will attack you or harm you. Or attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who who are my people. Now, liberal scholars are going to just ignore that, <laughs> that vision. Oh, that didn't happen. Or that's Paul's, uh, Paul ate, drank some bad milk and had a, had a bad, had a weird vision that night. Because if, if God is telling Paul to stay there and preach, that means he's preaching the consistent orthodox message of the gospel to these people. That The other apostles are going to preach as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're going to ignore that. So Paul stayed there for, and then verse 11, he stayed a year and six months teaching the, the word of God among them. And it is the word of God, right? There's not one of the words of God. Or it's not a version of the word of God. It is the word of God. And he stays there for a year and six months. That's a long time. That's, that's plenty of time to establish a, uh, an orthodoxy, a basic understanding of the gospel. Now what Walter Bauer is going to argue is that this is just Paul claiming his turf, right? So he's going to turn, again, he's going to turn these different sectors, geographical sectors, into turf war. So this is Paul, and this is his turf. He's established what he's taught, and uh, this is Paul's influence only, even though the Lord is the one that told him to do this. But, again, they don't, they just remove that. And what they're going to argue, and Paul writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, right, because as Paul's there for a year and a half, he's preaching these things. He hasn't really written anything down yet. He's he's preaching them. He's establishing elders there. He's establishing establishing creeds and uh, and liturgies probably in the in these church services and whatnot. And training leaders to to continue teaching uh, correct doctrine and uh, to the church when he leaves. So. Liberal scholars, starting with Walter Bauer, are going to argue that Paul writes to the Corinthians in First, Second, and in uh, a third letter, probably uh, th- uh, Third Corinthians, uh, when he's he's writing them because there's other there's other heresies or other orthodoxies influencing the church, right? And now Paul sees this as an encroachment on his territory. So instead of instead of bringing them back to a clear the clear teaching of God, the Word of God that that the Lord himself told him to do in a vision. This is Paul just being offended by somebody else coming into his turf and trying to take control of his church or something like that. And is that how Paul, well, first, is that how Paul saw what he was doing in the church in uh, Corinth? And that's easily, again, that's easily refuted if we just go to chapter 1, 1 Corinthians. Starting in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you bat- baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I, was, that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. So the liberal scholars would point and say, see, see, there's already differences in theologies as people would say, I follow Paul or I follow Paulus. Uh, and and what, is, what is Paul doing? Is agreeing with that? Going, hey, yeah, but follow me. Follow what I say. No. He's establishing that there's one message in Christ. Is Christ divided? Is the message, is the gospel of Christ divided? Is, is Apollo's teaching something different than Paul? Is, is Peter teaching something different than Paul? Or as people would say, I follow Christ. Is, are they ignoring what their elders are teaching them and saying, well, I'm just going to follow Christ or, or whatever? No, Paul is, Paul is correcting that wrong view, saying, no, there's, there's a unified message here. There's, it, it's not Paul who's crucified for you. You weren't baptized in my name. You're baptized in there's one baptism. So he's actually correcting what might may have turned into different different uh, um, groups or or I don't I don't even know if the beliefs would have been different, but they would have just they would have just uh, adhered to a certain teacher or something like that. And that's going back to like attaching yourself to a specific rabbi or something. Um, no, there's only one teaching that is Christ. So Paul is, Paul is going against that idea in, in the first chapter of Corinthians. Now, going back to 1 Clements' letter, right? with that in mind, with the, with the idea that Paul is is bringing unity in Christ's message to all of those that are proclaiming the gospel in, in the early church, we go to 1 Clements' letter, and Walter Bauer will argue that this is, this is Rome trying to assert its power into the church of Corinth, as uh, as those encroach on their territory, and I just want to read you read you chapter one of the letter that Clement writes writes to the Corinthians. There's 47 chapters. Uh, it's really encouraging to read, uh, but uh, here's how it here's how it starts: the church of God which sojourns at Rome to the church of God sojourning in Corinth. So, uh, Clement is identifying Corinth as the church of God. Sojourning, waiting for Christ's to return, to them that are called and sanctified by the will of God. So God, uh, in His sovereign will, is sanctifying the church and seeing the church as legitimate in their orthodoxy as they as the church in Rome through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't through specific apostles teaching different things, but the unified message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul says in First Corinthians, starting in chapter or starting in verse ten. Grace to you and peace from Almighty God through Jesus Christ be multiplied. We only have peace through Jesus Christ. That is a unified message that Paul preaches in Corinthians. wing, dear brethren, to the sudden and successive calamitous events which have happened to ourselves. We feel that we have been somewhat tardy in turning our attention to the points respecting which you consulted us. <laughs> so Clement is, res- Clement is responding to... To uh, the church in Corinth, uh, asking for help in in matters of uh, of the situation that they're in. So when when Paul is writes Corinth initially, there's there's a lot of disunity, there's a lot of dysfunction in the church. By the time First Clement writes the church in Corinth, it's it's worse. the the, the dissension is worse. the the uh, Divisiveness in Corinth is worse. Uh, and the, the elders in Corinth are reaching, have reached out to Rome as, as, for example, TRC might. If we were having some issues that we would need some outside assistance on, we may, we may go to another church leadership and ask, and ask for help because we are in the same body, we're in the same unified message of the gospel. This is what Corinth is doing. This isn't Clement asserting his power over a certain area. And especially to that shameful and detestable sedition, utterly abhorrent to the elect of God, which a few rash and self-confident persons have kindled to such a pity or frenzy that your venerable and illustrious name, worthy to be universally loved, has suffered grievous injury. For whoever dwelt even for a short time among you, and did not find your faith to be as fruitful a virtue as it was firmly established, who did not admire the sobriety and moderation of your of your godliness in christ who did not proclaim uh, who did not proclaim the magnificence of your habitual hospitality and who did not rejoice over the perfect and well-grounded knowledge for you did all things without respect of persons and walked in the commandments of god being obedient to those who had rule over you and giving all fitting honor to the presby- presbyters among you you enjoined young men to be of sober and serious mind you instructed your wives to Uh, to do all things with a blameless becoming and pure conscience loving their husbands as in duty bound and you taught them that living in the rule of obedience they should manage their household affairs becomingly and in every respect marked by discretion does this sound like a letter from a man who's trying to assert his control over a church that is adopting another form of christianity no no and uh this is why I think these, these scholars are just intellectually dishonest. And this is what happens when you abandon, when you abandon the idea of God having a decree, and of God, uh, the will of God being enacted in his, in his proclamation of what Christ has done, the final word, right? This is what happens when you deny that. So I wanted to use that as, as an example to say, look, if Walter Bauer thinks that this, this is a, a an example of some proto Orthodoxy trying to ma- maintain its, its, its views on Christianity, uh, then you have to ignore, you have to ignore what Paul writes. You have to ignore the context of what Clement is writing, uh, that Corinth actually reached out to them initially trying to consult them, uh, and it's, it's not a tenable argument to say that we, this is an example of proto orthodoxy trying to establish a foothold or take over the, the rest of these equally justifiable Christian beliefs. It's just, it's just not there. As time goes on, as groups start to take Bauer's thesis and build upon it, we have another man who uh, is a professor in England. His name is Arnold uh, Earhart comes up with an idea that we can look at the apostles creed and creedal formulas uh, in the primitive church to show that there was a evolution of of belief that what the what the apostles were preaching has never been consistent in fact it has it grows over time and understanding and in depth and and that would be a premise to say that when the church is founded that it is founded on a uh, knot uh, on orthodoxy because it's it's too primitive. the The theology hasn't been fleshed out fleshed out yet. And Earhart writes uh, this, and well, it's published in the the Harvard Theological Review, but he wrote it. Uh, he's published by Cambridge, and he wrote this in uh, 1962, and it's called it's called. Uh, Christianity before the Apostles' Creed. And he's going to ask three questions. And here's, here are the three, the three questions he's going to ask. We have to ask first how far back we can trace the literary form of creed, a short formula intended to embody all that is absolutely essential for a Christian to believe in order that he might be saved. Now, I like to stop right there, and I, I think this is a f- fallacious argument in the first place uh, because it's putting the, par- the it's putting the idea that if if a creed isn't completely exhaustive every time, that there's some kind of evolution in its theology. So, for example, uh, a lot of people will point to the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed mentions the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't really expand on the Holy Spirit. And liberal scholars would point that and say, this is evidence that there wasn't a thought-out, comprehensive, understood theology on the Holy Spirit, that it was just maybe some sort of power, like the force, like the Jehovah's Witnesses would, would say, or something like that. Uh, and that's uh, absolutely, back, that is so insane to say. <laughs> uh, this, that just, again, that just strips context out of, out of history. It, stri- it just makes everything so bland and two-dimensional. The context of, of Nicaea was going after Arianism, right? Who Christ was. Was Christ a creature or was Christ uh, eternal? Not made, begotten, not made, right? Uh, so, the, of course, the focus of that creed is going gonna, is gonna to heavily emphasize who Christ is because that's, that's the controversy at the time. When, when the controversy of the Holy Spirit starts to come up, okay, they're going to write language to define that but that is not to say then that there was they had to they had to come up with some kind of doctrine of the holy spirit or something like that no no it's when these heresies arise and they gain momentum that they have to put them down like they go back to the to scripture they go back to what the apostolic fathers are saying uh, as as the foundation it's not these evolving creedal confessions and it's the same thing when we see formulaic creeds in the New Testament, especially he's going to he's going to point to First Corinthians fifteen, especially as uh, a an early formulaic form of, of a creed, and that it's missing things, right? And he's going to he's going to point that to the that's evidence of Paul's evolving theology, which is is again just strips any any context out of what Paul, who Paul is writing to, what he's addressing, and whatnot. So here's the second question that he's going to ask. The second part of the question is, what authority is it, was attached to these formulas in pre-Nicene time? And in particular, whether they were being used as a touchstone of orthodoxy and as a means for the excommunication of unbelievers. The third and last part of the question is, whether or not it may be assumed that, even if no particular subscription to any formulated creed is likely to have been exacted, In an apostolic and sub-apostolic period, there was yet at least a a consensus or an agreement with regard to the content of the Christian faith amongst those who spread and those who held it. So, was there was there unanimity in the creeds, the formulated creeds pre-Nicene, from the apostolic fathers themselves, or from the apostles themselves and the apostolic fathers thereafter, uh, up until? the Nicene Creed, because again, they're going to, in the exclusive definition, that's when they'll attest to the church agreeing on anything. Now, I briefly want to go over uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and this, this, uh, this creedal formula here, and then compare it to, to the Apostles' Creed. Uh, just to show that, uh, well, one, I, I actually do think that Paul addresses most things that the Apostles' Creed is going to address as well. Um, but he, it's, it is in a different formula, of course. But, uh, you know, starting, let's see, starting in, starting, we'll start verse 3 in First Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Of first importance. So this is of first importance. This is the This is the foundation. Of first importance what I also received, and who do you receive it from by the way <laughs> from from Peter from who no Christ himself right as he was met on the Damascus road on the road to Damascus and then is taught by the uh, the resurrected Christ this is what he received this is what Paul received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that's 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 a lot he said a lot there in that and that just brief few words in accordance with the scriptures. Well, they, the Corinthians would know what that means that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas to Peter. And then, uh, then to the twelve. then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Now, this is uh, this is authority here. Uh, Jesus Christ in his resurrected uh, body appeared to the apostles, right? And he's 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 commissioning the apostles at this point to to go to the world and to speak the gospel. The helpers coming, uh, Pentecost will come, and they'll be able to speak and remember the things that Christ has taught them. So, Paul is putting himself in that category of authority that is handed down by Christ, right? Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, Paul is going to continue and go through the resurrection of the dead, right? Christ is the first fruits. Then he's going to go to the resurrection of the body, which is clearly... Uh, a physical body in the resurrection, not a spiritual one. And uh, now the Apostles' Creed reads like this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, right there, uh, Paul would have believed that even as a Pharisee, even before his his conversion. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. Now, Paul references that in verse 3. For I delivered you as the first of importance. What I also received, and that would be from Jesus Christ, our Lord, His Lord. Paul considered Jesus His Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Paul believed that if 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 Jesus Christ is teaching Paul, um, just like He taught the apostles on the on the road of all this, uh, how the Scriptures pointed to Him, uh, that's going to be part of what was revealed to Paul, born of the Virgin Mary. Sovereign of Pontius Pilate. Paul would know that already. Was crucified dead and buried. Well, look, Paul already talks about that. Um, That he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven. Well, of course he ascended into heaven, right? Because Paul was met by Christ (laughs) After, after that. So, to say that... Paul didn't believe that or something that was that evolved is uh, not not obviously not true. It sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Paul obviously believes in the Holy Catholic Church because he's he's establishing churches all around uh, Rome. So of course he believes that the forgiveness of sins. Well, of course he believes that. He uh, let's see. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul, Paul absolutely believes in the forgiveness of sins because he, he, is the, he calls himself the chief of sinners, right? This is the power of Christ on the cross. This is the power of forgiveness. The resurrection of the body, Paul clearly lays out the resurrection of the body here. And verse 35 going through verse 58. And the life everlasting amen and Paul clearly uh, lays out what life everlasting means, uh, and we see that as what life everlasting is in the first fruits of Jesus Christ because we inherit what he inherits, so what we see Christ being is what we will be now I know this is a lot I know i 'm going to a lot of different things here and has this how does this flow into canon well remember the the ultimate uh, issue with these liberal theologians is they remove any type of apostolic authority from the apostles in what, they, in what they have written in New Testament canon, right? We can't say that New Testament canon is clear and setting up orthodox churches around Rome and Egypt and Asia Minor. Uh, that just can't happen. We can't allow the apostles to do that, and we can't allow what they wrote to be clear enough to do that. So most importantly, how does a proper view of the apostles in the writing and development of the New Testament help, help us answer these arguments that we've kind of gone over, what we've just talked about? And that's what we're going to do with the rest of the time that we have. I did spend a large amount of time going over that and, and showing some of the flaws and the arguments. I hope I did that, but we'll spend the rest of the time looking at, uh, at Apostolic Authority. So here's the first question. First question is, did the apostles have the authority of Christ himself? Did the apostles see that as them having authority from Christ himself? And I want to read some scriptures uh, to show that's, that's clearly true and that, that they clearly did. And even Christ saw himself as giving his authority to the apostles. Mark chapter three fourteen through 15. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. The authority doesn't come from the apostles in themselves, it comes from Christ. It uh, comes from Christ's authority. Matthew 10, 20, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. This is the authority of the Father to the Son to the Apostles. John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So by the authority of, of the Father sending the Holy Spirit in the name of Christ, they're gonna, that's going to uh, infuse them with the, this power and this authority to teach all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. Your message will be cohesive, consistent message that will establish my church. And that, that comes from the cornerstone of Christ and the confession of Peter. That, and that is not proto-Orthodox. That is, that is what the church is established on in the beginning. John seventeen eight and John seventeen eighteen uh, Verse 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Acts ten forty one through 42, not all people or not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Uh, hey, that sounds kind of close to the Apostles' Creed, right? <laughs> um, but hey, they, that evolved much later and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Wow, that sounds like the apostles creed as well. Second Peter three, 2 Peter 3:2 That you should remember the uh, the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. This is the clear message. They have authority of Christ himself. They have a consistent message. They don't waver. They don't, they don't conflict. Peter and Paul don't conflict. Paul and James don't conflict. Paul and John in Revelation don't conflict. These aren't, these aren't regions with their own belief systems that are equally justified and equally authoritative as what the apostles are saying. It's just not there. So do we, see, do we see that extending out to the apostolic fathers? Uh, do they, what do they see the apostles as? right? Because uh, I, I think it, it surely helps that we see the consistency of the church uh, after it, it's established by the apostles, right? that we would see that consisten- consistency of orthodoxy and that consistency of how they viewed the apostles. So hey, let's go back. Let's go to uh, First Clement's letter, right? First Clement is the letter that Walter Bauer will argue that is the first evidence of of uh, orthodox tyranny upon a region, trying to trying to bring them into what Rome believes. But here's how Clement views the apostles, chapter forty-seven, and uh, the, the chapter is titled "Your recent discord is worse than the former, which took place in the times of Paul." I actually mentioned that. Um, this is where I got it from. Uh, he says, take up the epistle of the blessed apostle Paul. That's a huge statement. That means, one, that the Corinthian church had that letter. If he's telling them to take it up and read it, they still have it, uh, which helps the dating of that book, obviously. What did he write to you at the time when the gospel first began to be preached? <laughs> So again, there's, uh, Clement is, is asserting the consistency of the gospel here. What did he write to you at the time when, you, when the gospel first began to be preached? Truly, under the inspiration of the Spirit, <laughs> consistency in message. He wrote to you concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos, because even the parties had been forming among you, because even then parties had been forming among you. He's going back to 1 Corinthians chapter one, starting verse 10. But the inclination for one above another entailed less guilt upon you, inasmuch as your partialities were then shown towards apostles already of high reputation, and towards a man whom they had approved. But now reflect on those who have been uh, that have perverted you, and lessened the renown of your far-famed brotherly love. It is disgraceful, beloved, yea, highly disgraceful, and unworthy of your Christian profession, that such a thing should be heard as of the most steadfast and ancient church of the Corinthians should, on account of one or two persons engaged in sedition against its presbyters, And this rumor has reset not only us, but those also who are unconnected with us. Unconnected. <laughs> there's other people, there's other churches in different areas uh, saying the same thing to the church in Corinth. Uh why would, they say, why would they say that if they had different proto orthodox beliefs? So that through your infatuation, the name of the Lord is blasphemy, blasphemed, while danger is also brought upon yourselves. So that's what Clement says. What about Ignatius, another apostolic father? Here's what Ignatius says in his letter to Roman to the Romans in chapter four. This is when Ignatius is being led to his martyrdom. He says, "I do not, as Peter and Paul, issue commandments unto you. They were apostles of Jesus Christ, but I am the very least of believers. They were free as servants of God, while I am even now a servant. But when I suffer, I shall be the freedman of Jesus Christ." and shall rise again emancipated in him. Again, as far as uh, Aaron Hart talking about creedal formulas and how they evolve, and the, the apostolic creed is completely different than what the apostles are preaching. Uh, Ignatius is, is very clear. This is this is pre-Nicaea, obviously, right? This is Aaron Hart is talking about pre nicaean formulae creeds. Uh the, the teaching is clear. And again, he invokes Peter and Paul issue commands to you. Not that they're in conflict. Peter and Paul aren't demand, are commanding different things. They're not saying two different things about justification and sanctification and glorification. They're saying the same things. And there's the authority. They were apostles of Jesus Christ. They were ministers of the new covenant. They were given authority by Jesus Christ to preach and to set up churches And they were consistent in their message. All right, continuing. Justin Martyr. From Jerusalem there went out into the world men, twelve in number. By the power of God, they proclaimed to every race of men that they were sent by Christ to teach all the word of God. This is the same word of God that, that the Lord reveals to Paul in 1 Corinthians, uh, or uh, was it Acts? Acts 18. Acts 18. This is the word of God that the Lord commands them to stay and preach to the Corinthians. And and as Justin Martyr says, this is the same word of God that the 12 proclaimed to every race. Proclaimed to Asia Minor. Proclaimed to uh, Edessa. Proclaimed to Asia Minor. Egypt. I don't know if I said Egypt already. And Rome. Irenaeus. Irenaeus. We have learned from none others the plan of our salvation than from those through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public. (laughs) They proclaimed in public. This consistent message in public, which they proclaimed. At a later period, by the will of God, handed down to us in the scriptures. No way. That sounds pretty consistent with what everyone is saying in the early church handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith, the ground and pillar of our faith. This is orthodoxy. This is plain orthodoxy that the church is established in the beginning understood. There wasn't a mismatch of beliefs there. and, And how did they have this understanding of orthodoxy by the preaching of the apostles? And then later, as the apostles, and we're gonna get into this in a second, but as the apostles are becoming near to death and start writing these things down, are handed down to us in the scriptures for for humanity until the returning of Christ can know what God has said. So I think it's I think it's absolutely clear and is undeniable, and you have to do these mental gymnastics as these liberal theologians and liberal scholars do to remove the authority of the apostles to try to pit one apostle against the other it's 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 fictional it's not it's not i'm not i don't have a phd or anything like that and i i think i've presented arguments that are just you can't get around honestly i'm not saying my i have great intellect or arguments or anything like that these are just arguments that scripture and the Church Father themselves present to us. So it's clear that Church saw the apostles uh, as authoritative in what they preached. Uh, but Irenaeus makes a good point, right? So if, if, a church, if a Church saw the apostles as authoritative in their preaching, what would they have thought of letters that they wrote or documents that they wrote? Well, I think it's it's important to look at what the apostles themselves saw of the letters that they wrote. And we can go to uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Okay, 2 Thessalonians 3.14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Uh, so the apostles saw their letters as authoritative because this is what they're preaching. There's no difference in what they're preaching and what they're writing. It would then make you know it would then uh, make sense uh, that if the church took the apostles' preaching as from Christ, so too they would their writings. And this is and the church understood and they expected these writings to come, especially as the apostles were getting older or as as they saw their deaths as imminent as we see Paul and Peter in and second Peter Paul knows his death or Peter knows his death is coming and Paul knows that his time is nearing the end as well as he writes these letters to the churches now this is why the epistles themselves were taken as authoritative upon their reception and not and not suggested as different kind of orthodoxies it's not like Peter was writing letters so that his churches would believe one thing, and Paul is writing letters so their churches would believe another thing, and John was writing to churches so that their church would believe another thing. It's not this is, this is one cohesive message. And all the letters were, were taken with this authority. And they, they, they knew that these letters would be consistent and coincide with one another. This, this flies in the face of men like Bart Ehrman, uh, and his thesis, and, I, and honestly, I think Bart Ehrman knows it. Now, who is Bart Ehrman? Uh, he is a professor of religious studies at the v- University of North Carolina, and he has taken uh, Walter Bauer and his thesis and taken it to the mainstream. And has written many books about it, and uh, has been on the bestseller list many times. His argument, what Bauer, what or uh, what Bart Ehrman will do, is what he. He tries to, to sow the seed of doubt into, into those that listen or read his books by, again, saying that we absolutely know what what uh, the authors are saying in their, in their writings. However, we can't assume that all those writings are legitimate, right? And he's going to point to all the Gnostic Gospels and all the pseudepigraphal documents and all the forgeries that we find much later, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries, and say, well, if that's if that's the rule, why wouldn't that rule pertain to the New Testament canon? He he his axiom then is that New Testament canon must have a forgery in there somewhere. And if if we can sow the seed of doubt and say, how do we know that all of these are written by whom they say they're written by, then the authority of that document can be thrown out, and so can its orthodox right so can its orthodoxy. Therefore, If that orthodoxy can be thrown out, then uh, uh, we have to take equal weight with any of the other Gnostic gospels that that a church used, and let's say Egypt and the Gnostics, or Docetism and Edessa, or uh, Docetism in uh, in Asia Minor, or or Marcionism and Edessa, or anything like that. That's how that's how Bart Ehrman attempts to subvert uh, apostolic authority and consistency of orthodoxy now as we as we read in Irenaeus he suggested uh, that in due time by the will of God what the apostles preached was written down now why did the apostles write write these things down in the first place Uh, there's an easy answer and we can find that answer going back to Revelation 1 uh, 11 write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. They're commanded to write stuff down. <laughs> uh, another easy answer is that they saw that it was good to do so. Luke 1, chap- uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for t- some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, common salvation. (laughs) Uh, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then the the last reason the apostles are writing these things down is that they are nearing death. And obviously they saw it as necessary to write what they've been preaching. And there's always an understanding uh, that the church would continue after their death uh, that Christ may tarry in his uh his returning and they didn 't know for how long right they understood what what Jesus was saying in matthew uh, they didn 't know how long it would be until christ's return and his commands must be solidified for the church in the future right so the the churches to continue and its orthodoxy and its uh, and its belief all the way until christ returns <clears throat> and and in the first century and especially in greco roman uh understanding of history uh, a history r- uh written as an eyewitness of historical accounts was given as much almost as much wa- well yeah about as much weight as any oral testimony now they would say an oral testimony is better because they can question the person but a written account of that eyewitness was was taken with the same weight as as an eyewitness but but keeps that witness in perpetuity that you can always go back to And now most scholars, even Bart Ehrman, uh, would date Mark, probably the early the earliest gospel, uh, which was roughly 40 years after uh, the church's founding. Many believe that Mark was written to preserve Peter's teaching uh, just before or right after uh, his death. And Michael Kruger is one such scholar who points to that and who would agree with that assessment. So even Mark, uh, right, is is if that's true right if if mark is peter's teaching we then again there's there's no question that orthodoxy preceded heresy that a, a firm understanding of the gospel permeated the church and heresies came from that not before that Now, there's also a testimony genre of literature, of tradition, uh, as a reason for writing. Especially in Second Temple Judaism, uh, well-known teachers would write what uh, what they have taught. That would be their recording. Uh, their la- Almost like their last will and testament before they died. Uh, and we would call that today like a farewell speech or something like that. So when we see the testaments written, they were looked upon as the permanent written teachings of these uh, apostles now in second temple judaism these different rabbis would write down their different teachings right and uh uh, if you guys were on Jitsi last week brian mentioned that uh and actually april mentioned this too when they visited israel that everyone would have on their their cars like a bumper sticker that had their favorite rabbi on there Uh, so these rabbis would write down their last will and testament of their teaching right and the apostles' case, their last will and testament was their teaching, but guess who their teaching was from? It wasn't from different people. It wasn't from their own thinking, but this is their teaching that they received from Christ Jesus, the final word, the consistent message of the gospel. So it's a little different than having individual apostles write their own teachings that they've decided upon themselves to, to promulgate or something like that. And to see that, that principle... In Scripture, just read 2 Peter 1, 13-15, Acts 20, 17-35. I'm getting short on time. This one has gone really long, so uh, I won't read those. So in conclusion tonight, all right, so if the church is to be planted and built upon the cornerstone of Christ and the confession of Peter, uh, how would that be accomplished through time and space? If, the church is, if it's going to take thousands of years for Christ's return and Christ is going to preserve his people, Uh, how then would it get into every tongue, tribe, and nation? Uh, Well, we go back to the decrees of God. We go back to covenantal theology. We go back to things being written down. The God who brought about the the crucifixion of of Jesus Christ by evil men is the same one who decrees uh, the majestic uh, way and manner upon which proper doctrines, ethics is brought to the world their relationship to God in sin, and the only way to have peace with God through the Man Jesus Christ. This is the cornerstone of, of how uh, Orthodoxy is spread. He used texts; he brought them through to the world through merchants as they were carried along on these uh, these uh, these economic hubs of Laodicea and Antioch and Corinth and Rome, obviously. And the and the apostles themselves uh, and the elders that are spread among these regions. Why do you think why do you think the qualifications for elders are so important? If if there's a slew of orthodoxy, why would Paul be so concerned about who is an overseer of the church? <laughs> because that orthodoxy needs to be maintained, and they need to to counter anyone that is uh, is going to promote a different gospel. That's what. Uh, That's what he says in Titus uh, chapter 1, I think it's like verse 6, right? And with this view in mind, uh, we can conclude finally with Michael Kruger's quote in his book, uh, The Question of Canon. He says, quote, It was the mission of the apostles which would have been writing, and the resulting collection of authoritative books, a virtual inevitability. Please pray with me. Father, this was a long, difficult study tonight. I hope uh, I was clear in what I said. I hope I I presented your gospel and your truth in a way that would edify the body and would bring glory to you. Uh, We thank you for the word that you've given us, the consistency of the gospel. We thank you for saving sinners, even while we were enemies, even while we were godless. Godless pagans, you saw it good to save a particular people. And we can proclaim these truths as generations continue, uh, moveless on the foundation and the rock of the truth of Christ, that being the orthodox position from the beginning. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.